Revisionist. That's the nothing personal word of the day. Today is Monday. Didn't really feel like a Monday. I think today could be Friday. Feels like a Wednesday. Monday, April 27th, it's Revisionist, as in Revisionist History. I told you we'd talk about the last dance every Monday for the total five Mondays that follow the Sundays of two hours of the last dance. It's all about Jordan. They call it the last dance about the Bulls season. It's not. It's really Jordan. There are a few side stories. Last night was quite a bit about Dennis Rodman, a little bit of Phil Jackson. We're going to get to all of it. But let's start with revisionist, as in revisionist history. Did you pay close attention to the Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan, Detroit Pistons, Chicago Bulls situation? Here's the quick background While they do say on this documentary that sometimes teams have to get through other teams in order to get to the top, there was a lot of that back in the NBA and back in the 90s where you had to have the Pistons get through the Celtics, break through in order to make it to the finals and become champions. You had the Bulls have to break through the Pistons and finally beat them to start winning their titles. You had the Knicks have to break through the Bulls and Jordan before winning their titles. Oh, Right. So they were supposed to break through the Bulls. So you've seen that in basketball. You don't really see it as much these days the way you did back then. But one of the things that was a huge part of the documentary and a huge part of athletics and professional sports back in 1989 and 1990 and 1991, when the Bulls finally beat the Pistons, the Pistons walked off the court with 7.9 seconds left. While the game was still going, the team basically walked to the clubhouse, walked past the Bulls bench into their locker room without shaking hands. It was incredible. What was discussed back then is how the Pistons showed the lack of sportsmanship that they had become known for because they were the bad boys. They were a very physical team. The documentary did a great job of telling us that the Bulls actually, to get through the Pistons, Jordan started lifting weights. They started getting stronger. They realized that they had to overcome the Jordan rules. That was a very famous concept back then, the Jordan rules. You very rarely, when you're running a team, develop a plan to beat one player. You actually develop a plan so you don't get beaten by one player. That is the way it works in baseball. You pitch around certain players. You'd say to yourself, we're never going to get beaten by this player. But at the end of the day, it doesn't always work. It actually reminds me, Coke, I got to tell a quick Bond story. Uh, Spoke to Barry Bonds about this when he was a coach at the Marlins. We had a system in place that we would not be beaten by Barry Bonds. We'd meet with the team. There'd be pregame meetings with the hitters, with the pitchers, and say, here's how it's going to work. We're totally fine losing to the Giants, but it will not be Barry Bonds, period. Walk them. Don't give them anything to hit. And one game, and I can't remember who was pitching, but somebody would, we were in extra innings and Barry Bonds was at the plate and it was very simple. We were going to put him on base, not let him beat us, and he had a home run and we ended up losing that game. And I think it was in Florida. And I recall after the game, we were in the clubhouse saying, listen, how does it work that we have a plan that we're not going to get beaten by Bonds, but then we still get beaten by him? What is it that we can do? We don't need a set of rules. And this was post-Jordan rules, and which became very talked about within clubhouses, very talked about this whole incident with the Pistons and the Bulls and the handshake and the Jordan rules. It was a big 
point of conversation. And what was told to me, and I thought about it a lot last night, is that in baseball, you don't really have rules. You have an approach where you try to get out players a certain way, you pitch to them a certain way. But at the end of the day, baseball is such a game of failure that at the end, they're only going to hit 400 against you at best if they're a Hall of Famers and amazing. That means you're getting them out six out of 10 times. I like those odds. But in basketball, that's not the case. There is an absolute opportunity and chance that one guy, if you do not have a set of rules, you can't really deny someone the ball completely, but you can take care of him when he does have the ball and stop him from actually going into the paint or getting to his strong side. And we heard Brendan Malone last night in the documentary, he was an assistant coach at the time with the Pistons to Chuck Daly, mention, and I don't ever recall hearing it, what were the Jordan rules? Now, those Jordan rules, you'll say, were very similar to baseball's famous unwritten rules, right? Are these the unwritten rules that govern baseball? I heard someone once try to describe that to me as, as well, unwritten rules are sacred in baseball. I, we never really thought that in the front office. We knew the unwritten rules about when batters get hit after Euro players gotten hit. We've talked about on this show where you actually hit a player. It's in the numbers or it's on the tuchus. You never go head hunting like other teams did. Yeah, you know, Tony, that's true. Tony LaRusso, a good guy, but you knew when you were playing Tony LaRusso's team, you did not want get in, to get into a beanball because you were going to get hit in the head. So we would just swallow hard and let it pass. But in base, in basketball, you don't have these sort of unwritten rules like when there are handshakes or what you do when someone scores against you. Now, there are times... There are times when you're running up the score in basketball and all of a sudden you do something that you shouldn't do. There are times when you're going for a triple-double in basketball and you miss by on purpose in order to get your own rebound so you can get a triple-double, let's say. But it's not like baseball where beanings can happen. In the old days in basketball, there would be brawls. You saw a lot of that on Last Dance. But when we heard about the Jordan rules, <clears throat> you realize that there was a whole game plan that the only way to beat that team – was to make sure you were defending Jordan in a certain way. And Malone described it, which is we always make him go to his left. We always make sure that we push him into the middle uh, if he's, and we don't let him go baseline, et cetera. So Jordan basically found a way to adapt. And he found a way to find other teammates. And we're going to talk about the system that was put in place to do that because that was a big part of the show. But I just want to tie the loop here on Detroit, and I want to talk in a little more detail about it because it turns out to be a pretty big deal. In this documentary, we found out that Michael Jordan was so angry at Isaiah Thomas for leaving the court and not being a professional that it festered to the point where even a year later or two years later in 1992 for the Dream Team, Isaiah Thomas was not a member of the Olympic team that went to Barcelona, that very famous team with all the incredible pros, the greatest team ever put together, plus Christian Leitner. You remember that team. Isaiah Thomas was not a part of it. Isaiah Thomas was clearly one of the best players in the NBA, Hall of Famer, one of the greatest of all time. But the Pistons played a brand of basketball that was looked at as dangerous back then, except accepted with Dennis Robin and Rick Mahorn and John Sally and Bill Lame Beer and Vinnie Johnson and Joe Dumars. This was the type of basketball that was hard-nosed basketball, and it brought them two titles. 
And if you think that other teams weren't trying to copy it, you were wrong because that's what the Knicks did in the mid-90s with Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason and Patrick Ewing and John Starks and Derek Harper. They tried to be that, and they were that, except they just couldn't get over the Jordan hump. And the reason why the, the Jordan rules don't work at the end of the day is in basketball, when you're the greatest of all time, Jordan, or when you're the second greatest, LeBron, and yes, I'm throwing that out there as though it's fact, you find a way to get your teams to win. So why is this such a big deal now? This was such a big part of the documentary last night. And the answer is because I thought they were going to go into much greater detail about the relationship with Jordan and Thomas, the way Jordan felt about the Detroit Pistons, the personal vendetta he had against Isaiah Thomas, and they scratched the surface of it. They showed Jordan on the documentary a tape of Isaiah Thomas answering the question saying, hey, you know, That was the way it was back then. When the Celtics lost to us and we finally got through the Celtics, they walked off the court early. That's just how it goes. But it turns out Jordan doesn't believe that. And then we found out because Isaiah Thomas is trying to revise history. That's why revisionist is the word of day. If you thought I wasn't going to land the plane, which you knew I would, even at the nine minute mark, Isaiah Thomas has been all over TV today all over trying to become relevant and trying to explain why it is that he did what he did. And his claim was, which is strange enough, that if I knew then what I know now, that Michael Jordan was so upset about it that he may have, that it may have cost me my spot in the dream team, or that the entire Chicago Bulls team was upset and thought that it wasn't sportsmanlike. If I knew then what I know now, I may have changed But I can tell you that if it's true, Isaiah said this morning, that Michael Jordan or in any way he was a part of me not being on the dream team because of what I did, that makes me more disappointed today than I was then. Isaiah, you know very well why you weren't on the dream team because it was all over the news at the time. It was not a secret. And you know very well that it wasn't that you just forgot to shake their hands or that's the way it was because you and your teammates were asked about it after. At that time, it was the biggest story in sports. It was the biggest Bush League move ever. Even in hockey, they shake hands at the end of a hard-fought playoff series. Now, I grant you that fraternizing is not the way it was, but I have a question, Isaiah. I may be wrong. Let me think back. Did you and Magic Johnson kiss before the tip-off of every single NBA Finals game? Or was it just at the beginning of game one when you played them in the finals? Or am I completely thinking of the wrong thing? Oh, was it you and Jordan kissing? No. Was it Jordan and Magic kissing? No. Oh, it was Bird and Magic. No, no. It was you, Isaiah. So don't say you don't fraternize and don't say that you didn't realize that it was a thing to walk off the court without shaking hands when you were the king of the kiss. And now you're on TV going on every single network. Woe is me. I am the victim. You planned this with Bill Lambier. It's on TV. Bill Lambier whispers in your ear. You acquiesce and you walk off the court. You got beaten by a better team and you knew it. You got swept. Amazingly disappointing. And the documentary should have gone into way more detail about this. I wanted more Jordan V. Thomas. But instead, they spent a ton of time on Rodman. But even that, they should have done more. I was talking to Coca before the show. We were talking about the show. And I told him we're going to talk about Vegas. And we're going to talk about Rodman for sure. 
and he said, what's the deal with Carmen Electra? And why didn't we see more and hear more about her being in bed with Robin in Vegas when Jordan went to get him? Well, that's a damn good question. That's when the cameras aren't rolling. The cameras are seeing Jordan get his toes wrapped and ice his knuckles and his knees. We're seeing them lift weights and work out. We're seeing Rodman in bars. Where was the video of Rodman and Carmen Electra? Is that too much to ask? We're already hearing Jordan drop F-bombs. What would be the difference with a little FFN? Coca, do people know what FFN is? I wonder. That's funny. Do you know what FFN is? It's amazing. Coca's telling me he doesn't know. Full frontal nudity. FFN. Carmen Electra is in bed, hiding under the covers. Jordan goes into the room in Vegas, doesn't say, hey, Carmen, how are you? Hey, Madonna, how are you? By the way, you don't want to hear more about Robin and Madonna? They just show one picture where Madonna said to Robin, you be you? That's the least interesting thing I've ever heard. Come on, you can be better than that, the last dance. So during the 1997-98 season, this is what we're talking about, Dennis Rodman decided he needed a little vacation. And they spent 20 minutes of the documentary explaining how it was all good in the clubhouse. Dennis Rodman had to go away, and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were supportive because they knew what Dennis needed. Phil Jackson, the coach, was this great guru of yoga meditation who knew that, hey, to get the most out of Dennis, we have to let Dennis be Dennis. So Phil Jackson says, go to Vegas for 48 hours. That's fine. And Michael Jordan says, he won't be back in 48 hours. Phil Jackson says, fine. Phil Jackson's that crazy stoner relative you have who calls you on your birthday about a month and a half late and you're okay with it because he's your crazy stoner relative. And it's just cool that he remembered to begin with. That seems to me how Jackson treated Dennis Rodman. I get that sometimes you need easy love and sometimes you need tough love. But Dennis Rodman leaving a locker room in the middle of the season after Scottie Pippen doesn't get surgery, Michael Jordan calls Scottie selfish. Scotty comes back. Steve Kerr says we were all okay. We were all okay with Pippen delaying surgery because he wasn't getting paid enough. And then they're okay with Dennis Rodman disappearing in the middle of the season because he felt like a third wheel once Scotty Pippen came back. I've been in a lot of clubhouses and I find that extraordinarily hard to believe. Where was the talk about what Jerry Krause felt? Now that Jerry Krause is dead, they spent all the time sullying him and saying how terrible it is. They show him dancing on the airplane after they made it to the finals for the first time, purposefully putting in there when Jordan or Scottie Pippen told him to sit down and treat him like a fool. But not one word about what really was said inside that clubhouse. You find me one clubhouse, and I'll find you the first one, where they're okay with someone being treated differently, where they're okay with the star treatment, or they're okay with someone being able to leave in the middle of the season. I told you the Pudge Rodriguez story when we let him leave. What a mistake. We let him leave in the middle of the 03 season. Yeah, we won the title like the Bulls did, but it was a chemistry breaker. It was crushing. We got lucky. We got lucky because we had some errors made against the Giants. We had some great plays, great blown saves, and then great comebacks. We won the World Series. The Bulls won the championship. But that created chaos in that locker room much more than the documentary got into. Why couldn't they have gone into that in more detail? I would have treated that totally differently. Forget Dennis Rodman going to Vegas in the middle of the season. You want to be so different? 
Be different on your own time, not on my time. And Michael Jordan himself is, is uh, to me, he's not coming off great. And he actually said it when the documentary started. He said, I'm going to come off terribly during this documentary. I assume he saw the edited uh, project product. I know because the people making this documentary, I know some of them. Some of them were involved in the making of the franchise. There's no way that Jordan would have had last look in editing, but he certainly could have had some influence about what could be on and what couldn't be on. <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Yet for whatever reason, Jordan, in yesterday's episode, was okay with the statement when told that there's no I in team. He responded, but there is an I in win. And that, to me, is the epitaph for Michael Jordan in his career. That's what made him the greatest of all time, that he was willing to be the guy to say, we are going to win with me or we are going to lose with me. So he says that comment, which blew me away, by the way, because we all know he means it, but I'm surprised he let it be in there, which then shows that maybe he didn't have editorial control, which then shows why he did say, that he may not come off looking too good, which, by the way, he doesn't. He comes off petty and awful the entire documentary so far. So cut to no I in team, but an I in win. Then they go into a tired discussion about how his favorite coach, Doug Collins, who he loved and was very much in sync with, after losing the 89 playoffs, gets fired, bring in Phil Jackson, who was his assistant, because they were instituting something called the triangle offense. And the triangle offense is meant to get the ball out of Jordan's hand, to spread the ball around, and to get his teammates more involved in the game. Now, isn't that interesting to you? That Jordan contrasts his selfish, his very, very selfish comment, and then segues into how selfless he is to want Phil Jackson and the triangle offense and to embrace it. Well, they missed an intermediate step. When this was going on, Michael Jordan was not in favor of this change at all. And the only thing that proved the change to work and got Jordan to agree with it is a ring. Now, no matter what Jordan says to you about what, how much in favor he was of Phil Jackson, that really wasn't the case because he wanted more control over the coaching staff, the player moves, even back then before he'd won a title. This was well-documented. These are conversations I had had with Jerry Krause when I would talk to him about scouting and talk to him about putting teams together, talk to him about how to deal with stars because he was, he was basically P.T. Barnum. He was, it was like a traveling circus. They've done a very good job of showing that on this documentary. But how do you deal with it? And Jerry's view was you deal with it, and this was part of what formed how I was an executive. He said the way to do it is you have to make sure that you have consistency. And if you believe that the triangle offense is the way to win, you've got to do it regardless of what Michael Jordan thinks. Because if you're wrong, then you're in trouble and you're going to get fired. But if you're right, then you're bond forever. And that's what happened. They couldn't get Jerry couldn't get the players to like him, but he certainly helped get him rings because he brought in Phil Jackson. So the triangle offense comes into effect, and it was an entire interesting firing. I had not really remembered why uh, Phil Collins, I was going to say Phil Collins, but no, there is something in the air tonight, but why Doug Collins got fired, 
and then Phil Jackson got hired. And I thought about all the times that we fired managers and hired managers and why we did it. And it was never because we wanted a new system in place. It's because we wanted a new voice in place. And if we had a disciplinarian, we wanted a really good guy. If we had a good guy, we then wanted a disciplinarian. And so we'd go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for all those years. And what Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause did is they had a conviction of a system. And in baseball, there's just no parallel. You don't hire a manager for a system because you give the manager the players and then the manager will play those players to their strengths and the positions that the front office approves of because that goes on, as you know. And then you'll see how your team does. And it really is the responsibility of the GM and the president, and the owner to put that team together. But in basketball, it's totally different where the coach is going through and putting in a system with plays and then individuals carry them out. I've always told you, you can't make your best hitter hit in the ninth inning if it's not his turn at bat. But if you can devise a way to get Michael Jordan the ball, then he's going to take the shot over Craig Elo and win the game. Or he's going to pass the ball to John Paxson, who's going to win the game on a jump shot. You can control that in basketball way more. So if you have a belief in a system, you do it. So back then, the Bulls had not yet gotten through the Pistons. They had the greatest player in the world in Michael Jordan. You bring in Phil Jackson, who I knew from my Nick days. A quick shout out. Phil Jackson mentioned Red Halsman. Red Halsman is actually behind me now if you're watching. And I don't know if I can show it. I just, by the way, I just did something awfully funny. I just moved my iPad thinking that would move the camera. But the camera is actually in front of me. So I don't. And if I go down, can you see? No, I don't think so. Anyway, if you're not watching or listening, I have a picture of Red Halsman. He was a mentor of mine. I've spoken about him. I loved loved him and love him dearly. And Phil Jackson credited him as his coach with the Knicks of sort of instilling in him what it is to be a good coach. And Phil Jackson was that. But when he was hired, he was a guy who would coach at the Albany Patroon CBA. He was an assistant with the Bulls. He was. He had coached in Puerto Rico. All of a sudden, he becomes the greatest coach in the history of basketball. And to this day, he and Red Arback are the two greatest coaches ever. And I'm going to put Red Halsman on the podium. Yeah, it's tough, though. It's tough because you got Popovich. But Red, I'm loyal to you. I really am. Okay, my last takeaway from the last dance that I have to mention because it's been bothering me all night. And I'm doing it. Um, Coker, did you just whisper to me, please don't move the camera? I won't, because if I stand up and move the camera, I'm absolutely going to fall down in the middle of the show. And if you're not watching this and listening to this, by the way, thank you for listening. Um, I appreciate it. I just said um again. That's two ums in the last six shows. Not sure why that is. So the last thing I want to talk about is what Jerry Krause did. And I've been the first to defend Jerry Krause because I do defend management. He did something in 1998 that shocked me that I had completely forgotten about that was brought up in this documentary and that I wanted to mention. And what was brought up to me is that at the end of the All-Star break, the Bulls were going in to play the Utah Jazz. The Utah Jazz were an unreal team at that time with Stockton and Malone. They had Ostertag. They were a good team, maybe the best team or second best to the Bulls. And Jerry Krause, in the middle of the season, when things are finally going well, they started off slowly, they got Pippen back. Jerry Krause again reiterates that Phil Jackson's not coming back And further says, if Michael wants to come back, we want him back. But if Michael's saying he'll only play for Phil Jackson, he's going to have to learn to play for a new coach. We all know how the story ends because Phil Jackson doesn't come back and Michael Jordan doesn't come back ever again either for the Bulls. 
Can you explain to me why Jerry Krause did that? So I thought about it and I realized that Jerry Krause was so interested in making sure that he was a part of the narrative that he took over the narrative. And when you're the president or GM of a team and you want to instill yourself and you want some PR and you want some love, you go for positive love. Don't go for negative love. Jerry, I'm, I'm not happy you did that. I wish you were here to defend that, but you're not. You did a lot of great things. Greatest basketball executive in history, in my mind. I just don't know why you chose that. But if I know you well enough, you had a reason. And now we'll never know. Because in the documentary, no one came to your defense. No one was interviewed to say what your reason could have been. Last dance. We're four done. Six to go. Three more weeks. Six more hours. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. So, you want to talk to Samson? Okay. I'm happy to talk about it, actually. I would love to talk about it. Question I was asked was this. What are your thoughts on NBA practice facilities opening up on May 1st? That's a funny question, right? Because that's not a question that comes out of nowhere. Adam Silver announced this weekend in the big news on the basketball floor, other than the last dance, that NBA practice facilities can be open starting May 1st, which is Friday, as long as you're following local and federal and state law, and respectful of the CDC guidelines. Hmm. Let's talk about that for a minute. Adam Silver's been at the forefront of this problem-solving issue of coronavirus. He's tried very hard to figure out when the NBA can come back, and we know May 1st was the day that he said he would have an update, not before May 1st, maybe not even on May 1st, but that'd be the soonest he'd have an update. In the interim, some cities, some states like Georgia have opened up. Some of the beaches in Florida, California have opened up. How's that working? We don't know. People are not social distancing, and we don't know what the result's going to be. Here in Miami, there's a huge press conference today to announce the opening of parks with all sorts of rules that are so crazy to me that if the mayor of Miami believes that people will follow his cockamamie rules of what to do in a park. As an example, you can play basketball, but not with teams. You have to have your own basketball. You can play, you can run, but you have to wear a mask unless you are doing very aggressive, strenuous exercise activity, then you don't have to wear a mask. You can't go to a dog park, but you can walk your dog. You getting the point? 
it's not very clear what the rules are or how they're going to be enforced. And it's also not clear whether or not there's an equal application of the rules according to your ability to take advantage of certain circumstances. Those of us who are sheltered at home or quarantined, those of you who are working, those of you who have who are immunocompromised, it's a money issue as well. It's a have and have not issue. So Adam Silver has said, hey, you can practice, but no group practices, no organized practices, but you can go in and use your weight room. You can go in and shoot baskets, but you can't have a game and you can't have the team actually hold a practice. If I were able to do that in baseball and I had the ability to open up a spring training facility, but I was told by the commissioner that I couldn't hold an actual workout, you know what I'd do? I would hold an actual workout, but I would do it in a way that we wouldn't get in trouble because it wouldn't look like what used to be an actual workout. It would be a new workout. Here's the best way to describe the opening of the NBA practice facilities. Do you think that NBA coaches and assistant coaches will be asked to report to the facilities? I'm just asking, just throwing it out there. Of course they will. They will be asked to report to the facilities that are open and they will be married to players from their team and they will be working with them, having workouts, making sure they're getting into shape, getting ready because basketball, when they come back, there is a championship trophy to be won. I was going to say the Lombardi trophy. It's the Larry O'Brien trophy. Trivia, can you name the trophy for every four major sports? Stanley Cup, Larry O'Brien trophy is basketball. The Vince Lombardi trophy is football. What's the baseball trophy? Yep. I think it's the commissioner's trophy. Did they change it to the Bud Selig World Series trophy? Coke, I'm having a total brain loss. Is the World Series trophy called the Bud Selig? I think it's just called the the Commissioner's Trophy. I don't think they named it after Bud Selig. I think it's just the Commissioner's Trophy. And Coke is confirming, thank you. That's funny, the only league not named after someone. I think Lord Stanley was a lord. Larry O'Brien was a commissioner in basketball. Vince Lombardi, you know Vince Lombardi, coach of the Packers. Super Bowl was one and two. But of course we're going to have, if I'm the president of the team, I'm calling up my coaches and saying, listen, Get the practice facility open. Here's the staggered order that we are going to have these players come. Yet the coaches and the strength coaches and the weight coaches and the trainers are going to have access to all the players. So is there going to be a cleansing or a shower or a changing of gloves or masks or a way to separate the players? How would you do it practically in order to guarantee the safety? The answer is it's going to be done in the best way possible, but it's not going to be foolproof. And what I think Adam Silver's doing here, which fascinated me, we've talked about a nothing personal, the trial PR balloons that we float. This is a trial Corona balloon because by opening up the practice facilities, if anyone tests positive or gets sick as a result of these weeks, and it's not going to be days, it's going to be weeks of facilities open like this and practicing before games can even think about being started. If that happens, it'll be shut down again. You know what we said, one Rudy Gobert positive test and it's done. I find it very interesting. We're going to have to wait and see. It's not my wait and see, but there are two sides to this. If I'm the president of a team that does not have a chance for the playoffs, it is irresponsible for me to have those players come to the practice facility. If I'm a team that is in the top 16, that is right now has a playoff spot, 
it is irresponsible of me to not have the players come back and practice. I'd like to sit here and tell you that I'm all about health first because I can say that because I'm not running a team anymore. I'm about rings and about winning because as Pat Riley and many others would say, there's winning and there's misery. So if I have the ability from the NBA commissioner and I've got the ability from the local mayor who I would have called to make sure that we had the ability to open up the county facility where the heat play, I'm going to do anything I have to do to get my players ready for the playoffs because 10 years from now, no one will remember that this was the shortened season. It will be the champions for 2020. Oh yeah, that was the Corona year. That's when they took a few months off. Does anyone remember the other strike shortened seasons in the NBA? Because there have been. Do the San Antonio Spurs, when they won in a strike shortened season, that was 20 years ago. How do we feel about that? Are we okay? How do we feel about the Dodgers winning in a strike shortened season? Are we good? What about in hockey with works? Are we good? Yeah, we are. So I know as a custodian of this team, I'm bringing my players in right now. Adam Silver's taking a risk. So you want to talk to Sampson? That's when you go at David P. Sampson. DM me. Get in there. Get in the Twitter. Ask a question. What are my thoughts on the NBA practice facilities open up? My thoughts are I'm doing it if I'm in the race. Well, we are uh, day 43 of the beer challenge. It's sort of getting serious. First of all, the fact that it's been 43 days. Second of all, the fact that the beard makes me virtually unrecognizable. What's bothering me are two major things. Number one, my face ID on my phone does not work any longer. I don't know if you're finding that, Coca. I don't know if you have face ID on your flip phone, but I'm having a very hard time getting it to work. It's sort of once in a while. So that's a problem for me. Number two, I'm noticing that from a shower standpoint, and a washing up before going to bed standpoint, it is causing extra minutes that I don't calculate when I calculate how many minutes I need to shower or wash up before going to bed. The reason is the soap doesn't come out of the beard as quickly as it does of a clean shaven or a small growth uh, face. So I'm struggling with that, Coke. I don't know if you're finding the same thing, but it's day 43. No end in sight. Wait, there may be an end in sight. I want to talk about for one minute what happened here. There's news today that Major League Baseball may be in the next few weeks coming up with their plan to start on May 31st. That was a pause because I wanted you to soak that in because that's what's being reported, except that's not what was said. What was said is that Major League Baseball is looking to have a plan in place by the end of May, not to start games by the end of May. I'm very sorry to upset everyone. I'm happy to do a full So You Want to Talk to Samson segment about this. I really am. But I read that, and if I know baseball, what they are trying to do is by the end of this coming month, have a plan for a start date. There is no chance. I have a way to see that I've already given myself a win, even though I haven't done it on the show. I've given myself a win because there is no chance that there will be a Major League Baseball opening day by Memorial Day. Take the over, way over. So this news comes out and everyone's saying, oh, it could be. No, it's not. So the beer challenge, I'm giving $1,000 a day for 100 days. You know this. Please go on your favorite team's website. Go to their foundation, whatever you can afford to give. 
nothing personal is doing a thousand dollars a day for a hundred days. The three for this weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Philadelphia, Indiana, and Miami. Yes. Sixers, Pacers, Heat. Thousand dollars. Use it well. ML Beer Challenge, day 43. Okay. I want to talk about something now that is uh, not a comfortable subject, and it's not going to be a popular subject, but it's an important subject. This past weekend, the New England Patriots drafted a kicker. His name is Justin Ronwasser. Coca. <laughs> it's Justin Roarwasser. Justin Roarwasser was drafted to be the replacement pick kicker for the New England Patriots, the guy who kicks the extra points, the field goals. They've had the same kicker forever, whose name Coke is going to tell me because it ends with Owski or something. I just can't. I'm having a blank. But suffice it to say, the Patriots decided to put in a brand new kicker. Steven Gotkowski. Say it again. Steven Gotkowski. Steven Gotkowski was the kicker forever. So the Patriots drafted a new kicker. What's the big deal? They have a new kicker. Great. Kickers get old. They get tired. Not everyone can be George Blanda or Tom Dempsey. Fine. They draft this guy. No problem. All of a sudden, word comes out that Justin Rohrwasser, we're going to call him Justin because I'm tired of saying Rohrwasser, has all sorts of tattoos. And one of his tattoos is now being interpreted as a tattoo that supports a right-wing militia group. And all of a sudden, it was duck and cover time for everyone. So what happened? What does this story mean? What's the moral? And what would I have done? How do you protect this from happening? So the way it works when you're trying to draft a player, you send scouts in, they meet the player, they talk to the player, they meet the player's family, they meet the player's coaches, they see the players. Is it possible the Patriots drafted Justin without having seen him? And is it possible that because of coronavirus and because of scouts being on the road, was Justin at the combine? Or was he drafted blindly? Either way, it doesn't matter because you can't hide if you're the Patriots. You drafted a player and you were not ready for the guaranteed PR problem that you were going to have. There was a question asked of Justin early on about his tattoos And he said, they're just random tattoos. They don't have much meaning. They don't fit together. I just got them. Who knows why? All of a sudden, there was a firestorm about this tattoo on his arm, I think it is, about the right-wing militia. And he then changed his story. He said that he's now going to cover up that tattoo because he wasn't aware of its meaning. And now it has become something that, quote, I do not want to represent. Does that pass the smell test to any of you? Is there a chance that you think that Justin Rohrwasser got a tattoo of a right-wing militia group, had no idea what it was, no one ever said anything to him until it was mentioned in the media after he was drafted, and now he gets all the PR pushback, and he decides, oh, I'm going to cover it up now when I play. Do you think you can cover up the fact that you're a racist by simply covering your tattoo? Or if you're not a racist, can you explain what the tattoo is? And if you thought it was something that you no longer represent, why don't you get the tattoo removed? There were 20 different things that could have happened this weekend, and none of them did except one. 
The one was the meekest response to this situation I've ever seen. And I recognize the difficulty of this because our producer, Coca, as you know, I don't know if you do know this. I told you about his gladiator tattoo. He's tatted up. I have tattoos. I love tattoos. Do you get a tattoo where you don't know what it is? If you're that drunk and irresponsible that you get a tattoo and you don't know what it is, normally it's barbed wire or it's a butterfly on your neck. You don't get the tattoo of a right-wing militia group when you're drunk and have no idea what it is unless you're going to a tattoo parlor that's run by a right-wing militia group. And why would you go to the tattoo group if you're not a part of it or in favor of it? I'm not opining whether or not this kid should have been drafted. What I'm telling you as a team, what the Patriots needed to do. They got behind the story. You've got to get in front of it. The way you get in front of the story is you look at the kid and you have an idea. You have an idea of what is on the kid's body. You're doing all sorts of x-rays, physicals. You're seeing the tattoos. There's not one tattoo a player of mine ever had that I didn't see. You see them all. You're surrounded by them. They're naked all the time. And you're telling me that Rohrwasser goes into a tattoo parlor, gets a huge tattoo, and, and just said, oh, that's just random words? That defies credibility. So the Patriots have a problem. Do you just let this go away? You don't comment on it? You let them play with it, covered up? Is it a responsibility of a team to make sure that you agree with the political beliefs of every one of your players? I love where your head's at, folks. And I'm here to tell you the answer to that is no. I am not going to control what my players do when they are not in my clubhouse. But I control which players are in the clubhouse. And if I have a player who I think is a racist, that player will not be on the team. If I have a player who has a tattoo that's inappropriate and that reflects beliefs that do not flow with this organization, I have a choice. I would go to the owner and say, this person should not be on our team. When we have a person who would be convicted or charged with domestic abuse, we have a choice to release that person. Wasn't there a football player this year released because of domestic abuse and then signed by another team? Anyone remember that? I think it's Kareem Hunt, Coca. Confirm that for me. Kareem Hunt, I think, had a domestic abuse issue, and then he got cut and then re-signed. What about Antonio Brown? He got released, and then the Patriots picked him up. Do you remember that? And then got released. The Patriots make a decision that I would never make if I were running a team. The Patriots have proven through their cheating, through all the ways that they skirt the system, through all the ways that they spy or cheat or steal or anything they do, they know how to massage the truth. And the way they massage the truth is that if you can help them win a game, they don't really care what you do the other times. I'm not that way. I'd rather give up every game I've ever won. I would give you my World Series ring right now. Now, am I perfect? No. Were there players who did steroids and I knew about it? Meh, maybe. Can you see me nodding on when you're just listening? Let me see if you can feel it with my beard. Yeah, I'm nodding. But if you think there's not a difference between steroids and racism or steroids and people who commit crimes or commit hate crimes, this guy, Justin, put the tattoo on his forearm. He didn't, like, hide it. He put it in the most obvious place it's around always. It's extremely frustrating to me. What about the NFL? What are you supposed to do? What about the agent? 
think the agent didn't know about the tattoo? I know a lot of agents, and I know a lot of agents couldn't care less about their players. They want their players to get paid, but agents know exactly what their players look like. What do you think? Justin wore long sleeves every time he met the agent? How do you feel? I don't even know who his agent is. I don't want to know. I don't want to give him any publicity. And I'm only giving Justin publicity because I want to shame him into getting rid of the tattoo. No, I don't want him to get rid of the tattoo. I want him to get rid of those beliefs. Keep the tattoo all you want. And if you're the Patriots, you know exactly what they're going to do. They're keeping the player. Why wouldn't they? They think they could be better. The moral of the story for Justin Rohrwasser is this. Whether you can get a tattoo removed or not doesn't matter. Permanent is permanent. And if you're going to do something to your body, you better know exactly what it is. And if you don't, that's on you. And if you're in the public eye and a professional athlete or you're any sort of potential role model, and that's what you are going to be reflecting, then it is incumbent on the team to put an end to it. I wanted to see the Patriots release him. That's how serious I am. Or the Patriots come out and make it a learning opportunity, a learning exercise. Why not tell the world that you don't accept this? You will not allow that sort of belief system. Nah, they'd rather win an extra game. It's a joke. I'm worked up about this story. I am. It gives everyone a bad name in sports. Wait to see. I made an error, but I made it on purpose. So I tell you about errors I make and I correct them. And uh, I got, I, I talked about Jordan Love on Friday, I think, when he was drafted by the Packers and I called him a Ute. So everyone, everyone meaning there were many of you, a plethora of you got into my DMs and Instagram messages and various other forms of communique and said, Jordan Love went to Utah State. He's an Aggie. You called him a Ute. You must have been confused. That's the University of Utah. (laughs) I appreciate you telling me that. You know that I do corrections when I'm wrong because we give you 45 minutes and uninterrupted, nothing personal. If I'm wrong, we're going to correct it and you're going to tell me. We're not going to edit it no matter what. Well, I didn't know Jordan Love went to Utah State. I didn't think he went to University of Utah. I called him a Ute because the two Utes is a line from my cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomai. And it was spoken by the judge who was played by, um, oh my God, oh my God, who played Freddie, uh, the big guy in the Munsters, the dad in the Munsters. Anyway, I can't remember. But he said the two Utes. So whenever I hear about someone young, I always refer to them, mostly, always would be hyperbole, as the Utes. Anyway, I appreciate the correction. Jordan Love went to the university, not Utah, that's a Ute. He went to Utah State, that's an Aggie. But there you have it. My way to see is this. Uh, I think the Patriots are going to see the light, and they are going to get rid of Joshua, Justin, not Joshua, Justin Rohrwasser. I think they will have a different kicker by the fourth game of the 2020 season, whenever that is. But the worst part is that it will have nothing to do with his tattoo. It will have everything to do with he will not be good enough. He will be not with them after game four at the latest. And they'll call him up and they'll say, hey, Justin, guess what? I don't care about your tattoo. You didn't make enough field goals. And you know very well, it's just business. It's nothing personal. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.